Welcome back to the Political Sidetrack Podcast, where we're always discussing politics from an energy industry perspective. Once again, I'm your host, Len Vermillion, coming to you from the Heart Energy Studio in Houston, Texas, where it's starting to heat up around here, and I'm not just talking about the weather. Of course, it always starts to get hot and humid around these parts this time of year, but it's also starting to get really busy. Lots of conferences happening around the city and all of Texas. We just came off of two, Doug Permian Basin and Energy Capital Conference, and the Offshore Technology Conference will be here before we know it. But we're going to focus a little bit up north in this episode, specifically the Middle Atlantic, where the latest fracking ban was recently passed in Maryland, joining New York and Vermont, although I don't think anyone was clamoring to drill in Vermont or really Maryland even. But that's not the point. We're going to discuss state fracking bans in general and whether or not they are effective for those who want to, quote, keep it in the ground, as they say, or a lot to do about nothing. Are they gaining momentum around the country? And what are the effects of such bans, not only on the industry, but also residents? I talked to three gentlemen, Mike Hogan of Hogan Energy Consulting in New York, and Drew Cobbs, the Executive Director for the Maryland Petroleum Council and the Eastern Region for API, who is quite familiar with the happenings of the recent Maryland ban. And we'll also have Dan Weaver, the Executive Director of Pioga in Pennsylvania, which of course, sandwiched between the two states that have bans and one that does not have a ban, will that state benefit or will it be a target? And who else is a target for fracking bans around the country? We're gonna talk about all of that, and I'd like to point out that we had some instances where phones cut out, so at times there may be some lines that are hard to decipher, but let's take a listen. So we're gonna play part one of our roundtable. Gentlemen, I wanna thank you for taking the time to be with us here today on the Political Sidetrack podcast. Let's start with the most recent event, Maryland, Maryland's banned on hydraulic fracturing. Uh, Drew Cobbs, Executive Director with the Maryland Petroleum Council uh, and API, you've been quite familiar with how this ban came about. Um, can you explain a little the political environment in Maryland and what led to this getting through the legislature and being signed into law? Absolutely. I mean, this fight's been ongoing for probably like six years or, or so. But, you know, in Maryland, there's a strong environmental movement to start with. Um, the other issue at play was that only a very small part of Maryland lies in the Marcellus, uh, equivalent of about 1%, and that's just far western Maryland. So the politics were interesting because that Marcellus shale lies in one person, one senator's district, so one out of 47. And it's even worse than the House of Delegates is one out of 141. So only a very small part of the state was, uh, you know, had any chance of directly benefiting from development on that. And the, the, I'd say the other thing is the Trump effect that, that because the environmental uh, community probably can't make inroads or it's going to be very much on the defensive uh, in Washington on the federal level, uh, I think they're concentrating efforts uh, on fertile ground, which is more, you know, the east uh, coast, the northeast in particular, and then California and some other places. Okay. Uh, you've been quoted uh, after the it was signed by Governor uh, Larry Hogan, not to be confused with Mike Hogan, who we have on, on the podcast nope. here today. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, absolutely no relation. Yes, absolutely no relation. <laughs> Um, but uh, Drew, you've been quoted. I thought I think it was in the uh, the Baltimore Sun. I'm not sure which newspaper exactly, but the, you know, talking about how this will affect the residents of Maryland and natural gas production and the benefits that they'll now miss out on. I mean, could you further before we go into more discussion, kind of clarify or say what you were saying there? Well, well absolutely. You know, Maryland is is basically a consuming state on that. And here they had a chance, you know, for some potential for energy production. And, you know, locally it would have been a huge boom for Western Maryland, Garrett County, Allegheny County, and those counties that potentially could have development. And uh, the initial projections were that they could generate roughly about $300 million a year in economic activity and about 2,000 jobs uh, per year that would have been direct from development. But as far as the state as a whole, I mean, that's what the irony is, is, you know, everyone in Maryland is benefiting from this process um, on that, you know, whether they, you know, drive a car or turn their lights on or heat their homes. Over a million people uh, in Maryland uh, heat their homes with natural gas. So they're they're huge benefits. And uh, IHS study we had done, API had done, uh, showed that, you know, your average American has saved $1,200 a year because of this technology. Okay. We're going to come back to Maryland a little bit later, but before we get too far down the line, let's let's talk to Mike, the aforementioned Mike Hogan, uh, about New York, which is sort of the, the ringleader, I guess, in this, if that's a good term to use. But um, So, Mike, you know, why don't you explain a little bit about New York and the history, how that came about, and where, how we really got to this point starting there. Well, the, the whole thing started back in 2010, 2011, uh, when uh, – Potential to uh, first off, there was a very big leasing play in in the southern tier of New York and uh, Pennsylvania. There was some drilling started in Pennsylvania early on, Tioga County, Lycoming County, uh, et cetera, along the border, as well as of course uh, uh, southwestern Pennsylvania into the Marcellus, and of course in today now the Utica. Um, as that developed, New York uh, started looking at their regulations. And New York worked under a generic environmental impact statement, which is actually quite a handy agreement, uh, which the the most recent uh, one prior to to the high-volume hydraulic fracturing was completed in the early 90s. Uh, That document really covered every aspect of drilling and, and operating wells. So if you complied with the various components of that agreement, you could move forward quite easily in getting a permit. Your permit stated that you were in compliance with those regulations. Unfortunately, when that was developed, nobody was anticipating uh, horizontal drilling or high-volume hydraulic fracturing. The the GEIS, as it's known, Environmental Impact Statement, was silent as far as uh, horizontal drilling went. So that was pretty much accepted, and there are a number of wells drilled horizontally in New York. However, they did not receive high-volume hydraulic fracturing. The generic environmental impact statement only covered fracturing wells utilizing a maximum of 80,000 gallons uh, of fluid. Uh, Nothing was said about sand concentration. Uh, initially, there was some thought that people were going to inter- interpret that 80,000 gallons as per stage in a in a in a uh, horizontal well. 
however, DEC uh, kind of raised their eyebrows and said, well, we're not so sure about that. Uh, it went through various rulemaking processes, and finally it ended up to the governor, who at the time uh, we were going through a little transition in our political world, and David Patterson came in as our governor uh, from be, being vice gov uh, or being the uh, uh, lieutenant governor. And he kind of kicked the can down the road. He said, you know, uh, high volume hydraulic fracturing might be a really good idea. Let's take the simple route. We'll just rewrite, update the GEIS. Um, that was in 2011. In 2012, the end of 2012, they had a rough draft and went to some hearings, uh, which led to uh, led to all sorts of uh, comments, and I think they ended up with about 260,000 public comments over uh, various phases of the hearing process. When that was all done, uh, the governor's office by this time had changed to uh, our current governor, uh, Mr. Cuomo, and they were, uh, it was very obvious that the governor's office was very much opposed to any sort of hydrocarbon development in New York State. Uh, the governor's office, through the Department of Environmental Conservation, asked the uh, DEC to consult with the Department of Health and add a whole segment to the new GEIS that was being worked on uh, as to the health impacts. And if there was no negative health impacts, then maybe they would have to consider rejecting the new GEIS and effectively rejecting uh, high volume hydraulic fracturing and even possibly uh, horizontal drilling. And so that's, that's the history of it. In 2014, uh, I think it was December 17, 2014, the health department came out with their study, which took approximately two years. And um, it, there's numerous pages. I think the, the whole document's 180 some pages long. I've read it. Um, and it, it goes on to state their rationale, but they basically came out and said, there's too many risks for uh, allowing hydraulic fracture, high volume hydraulic fracturing in New York State. And so it should be banned. Uh, maybe visit it again in the future when more studies are complete, but uh, for now they recommended that it be banned and within days it was banned. So in New York, um, it actually never went through a, like a legislative legislature process. No, there, it, no, it's it's never been visited by the legislature. There's been various moves to do that. They've never had any traction. Uh, it's strictly, uh, I would call it a an executive move. It, it's strictly political. I mean, you know, it's thinly veiled political uh, uh, maneuvering, which is quite uh, different than what happened in Maryland, right? Uh, uh, through, I mean, that actually went through yeah. the whole Congress. Yeah, absolutely. The legislature has, you know, passed a bill. Uh, the governor signed it. You know, it will become law. Um, so, you know, I think that that has, you know, is much more difficult to overturn than an administrative yeah. decision or whatever that was made in New York. Yeah. And so a lot lot more burden to overcome to reverse that decision in Maryland than probably New York. Right. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with New York down the road if, if the governor changes so forth. Before we get too far into that, I want to bring in um, Dan Weaver, uh, executive uh, director with Pioga in Pennsylvania. Keystone State, Dan, I, we don't want to leave you out because you're right in the middle of all this. Do 
hearing what you heard from these the other two gentlemen, do you, is Pennsylvania is it something that is concerning for for the industry in Pennsylvania to see maybe that they they go down this road at some point? Oh, absolutely. We look at it this way. You know, bans that restrict the, the chance for energy independence don't benefit anyone in the long run. Um, you know, from, you know, we look at, where, where, where do we go from here? You know, we've, we've been a, a, a battleground state um, for, for many years now, um, and the opponents of the industry have always tried to use care tactics and, and have promised widespread devastation, um, you know, through hydraulic fracturing. It's, you know, which obviously hasn't happened. So that has, you know, kind of calmed a lot of those fears. And the fact that, you know, we've had oil and gas development within our state now for almost 150 years. So, but we're always stay vigilant. We always are out there trying to keep people educated as to what's going on. And I think, I think that's, that's the key um, to, to, to keep winning support. Right. And I, I would think the stakes for Pennsylvania are pretty high there because, as we saw in the last election, I'm, a lot of people, and I'm full disclosure, I am a Pennsylvanian, uh, a native Pennsylvanian, but um, the last election, a lot of that vote turned on the prospects of jobs, which I would assume would be not only coal, but hydraulic fracturing jobs coming back to the state. A lot of people were banking on that five years ago. So. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it was it was one of the fastest growing industries, and obviously we had the economic downturn. Uh, but the fact that we're having us starting to see a slow build out, if we look from where we were a year ago when we had about 13 rigs turning in the state to now we're over 30 rigs, uh, there's, you know, we're starting to see jobs come back. We're starting to see that, that it's a slow growth at this point in time, which isn't always a bad thing. Okay. Um, but it's not just the jobs that are on the rigs. It's the next level of jobs out. It's all the support. It's the, you know, all the ancillary, and then it's the takeaway. You know, we have to get this gas to go somewhere, so it's the midstream build-out, the pipeline build-out. Um, right. You know, it, it benefits everyone is if we can provide, you know, a low-cost commodity that benefits everyone, you know, including manufacturers. Great. Well, you brought up two very important, point, important points, and I want to bring the other two guys in, too, on this because – uh, is it is first of all, or is economic growth and jobs something that New York and Maryland are now missing out on? If either of the other two want to chime in on that, or and will that make a difference in changing anybody's mind about the about the uh, okay. uh, This is Mike. Uh, I believe that uh, New York has has already missed the boat. Uh, even if it was to open up, there's so much infrastructure by the service companies and drilling companies, et cetera, already up along literally just south of the border of New York, Williamsport, Pennsylvania, some other areas along there, that they would service New York it was to open up from those facilities. However, uh, the real economic impact is on uh, taxes and, uh, and on, you know, New York has an ad valorem tax, and that goes directly to the local uh, economy and to the school districts, which would be significant as well as the royalties that would go to landowners. I mean, there's, if you go along the potential areas of the southern tier, it's the poorest portions of New York. And most of the people are rural, it's farms. And many of those farmers are, are struggling to keep their farms and not losing them uh, to tax uh, 
tax problems. Maryland is very similar to New York in the sense that Western Maryland, where development would have occurred and where there had been 100,000 acres plus lease for potential development, um, you know, is, is a you know, relatively depressed area, and obviously could use the economic boost and use the jobs that would have been created. And with activity occurring, you know, it, as Dansworth said, just, you know, stone's throw across the state border, right, both in West Virginia and Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So that, that hit, and I think that's one of the problems with the environmentalists pushing for the bans in places where you don't have development yet and don't have any of the benefits to show, uh, it's a little harder to try, try to make the case versus places like Pennsylvania and West Virginia and Ohio, you know, where there has been activity and, and obviously there's a lot to show for it and a lot of benefits. Okay, several interesting points made in that segment, not the least of which is the expectations that in addition to going after the producers, these gentlemen expect that the midstream sector will be highly targeted, and I'd have to agree. I also find it interesting that the traction that is being made in non-producing states, it would be very interesting to see what would happen if there was movement afoot to ban fracking in places like Pennsylvania, which of course, has a lot banking on the natural gas industry. That's why it swung in the last election, in my opinion. So what's your opinion? I want to know. You can tweet me at Len Vermillion, that's with two L's, or you can send me an email if you want to discuss this offline at lvermillion at heartenergy.com. You can also leave comments in the comments section. And since we're talking about the Marcellus today, don't forget to make your way to Doug East in Pittsburgh, June 20th. To 22nd. We'll be discussing much more about that region and we'll have plenty of experts including some of the guys we're talking about here today on hand. You can get more information on the conference at DougEast.com. Before we listen to part two of our roundtable, I want to bring in our senior editor, Velda Addison, who's going to help us with a new segment here on the podcast we like to call Round the World in 80 Seconds. Welcome, Velda. Hi, Lynn. All right, of course, energy politics isn't only happening in the United States, but there are several regulatory issues happening around the world. So what's the news from around the globe? Uh, We're going to put it on the clock and we're going to try to cover this in around 80 seconds. So Velda, ready? Go. Let's start in Australia, where, as you may have heard, there's been somewhat of a panic about the pending gas shortage on the East Coast, which is heavily populated in Sydney and Melbourne. This could become a full-blown crisis in 2019 unless something is done to stop it. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull met with energy leaders on April 19th and said he came away encouraged by the meeting in efforts to stop the crisis. But he added there is still much more to be done. In the Middle East, OPEC has its next conference set for May 25th, when presumably we'll find out plans for production cuts and whether they'll continue. Now, OPEC has announced it will meet with non-OPEC producers that same day. Reports are that Saudi Arabia supports extending the cuts if all participating producers, this includes Russia, agree. There's a bit of a standoff in the Persian Gulf between Iran and India. 
Iran's oil minister recently dismissed India's threat to cut oil imports from Tehran amid a dispute over the development of the offshore Farsad B gas field. And in case you missed it, Argentina is hoping to keep up with the future demand for natural gas in the Pampas and Patagonia areas. The government is looking to reel in just over $260 million to develop three gas pipelines to serve growing populations in the regions. All right, well, thank you, Velda. Seems like Russia is always the wild card in the OPEC deal. But anyway, and as far as Australia is concerned, I covered that area and that was a story we've been covering four years ago and it still seems like we're covering it today. So we'll keep tabs on it. Okay, let's get back to our second part of our roundtable. This part focuses on where we go from here. Will it become a national phenomenon? Will the federal government step in or should it? Here's what our experts had to say about that. Do these kind of bans embolden the uh, embolden the state for more bans? And and I think we were talking earlier off offline about uh, pipeline build out, which is now the next big thing that we're going to be talking about. So, where do we go from here? Is I guess the question I'm looking to ask. They're trying to make a case that, that that's it, but you know, initially they, they banned fracking in Vermont, and there wasn't any, so that really wasn't much of a deal. Now they've moved on to Maryland and, and obviously had some success in New York, at least a moratorium temporarily. So you know, it, it, they're, they're trying to make inroads that way, uh, but I think in the long run, especially the states that really have it and have a significant presence, uh, I think they'll be hard-pressed to make it, have any success. They've also tried Florida this year, but were unsuccessful. Right. But in like New York, they're really blocking pipelines at this point, right, Mike? Well, and to me, that's become one of the big concerns. I, I think for New York to open up the hydraulic fracturing, uh, we'll, we'll need a change of government and, and uh, at, at, the, at the top of the administration uh, and also need a higher price. I think if, if New York opened up right now, uh, it, there's easier places to work than New York. So it probably, probably wouldn't be a big rush to come to New York uh, and, and work. But um, with, with that said, to me now, the biggest issue is turned to pipelines, and, and I think the, the anti-hydrocarbon folks have patted themselves on the back. So, okay, we've taken New York out of the play. What else can we do? And and now it's pipelines. Not only does it affect the, the, the residents of New York, but it affects all the residents of New England who are right. really suffering. In the middle of winter, their gas prices are astronomical right. because they can't get the product. Uh, the, the people in New York are affecting everyone in the East Coast, from the producers of Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia, to the consumers in, in their own state, as well as New England. It's, it's, it's absolute insanity. Does that affect Pennsylvania and even Ohio and West Virginia? Because where are they taking that gas they're pulling out of the ground? I mean, you can only take it across Pennsylvania. You hit a border. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the mar I mean, the markets are, are, are New York and New England, or at least a big part of it. As, and then when you, when it, you talk about northern access, it not only – but it's, it's export to Canada, which is a very big market. Yeah, in, in Maryland, we had a huge project, a $4 billion LNG export right. facility. Our Dominion was converting their Cove Point facility into an export facility, and, and environmentalists fought that tooth and nail 
bought some of the pipelines and compressor stations and stuff and that. Now they were unsuccessful, uh, but it was it was a real war, a real battle. So the, even the littlest thing to even a you know expansion of a compressor station, whatever, they, they're fighting every at every chance they get if there's a FERC hearing, if there's a, a public uh, utility commission hearing in states or environment permits uh, and just trying to drag it out, delay it, anything they can do. But they're sort of fighting these on all all fronts and uh, uh, it, it, it needs, need, we need to address this. The other interesting thing is they always make the point now in Maryland like this is frack gas that's coming through here you know that, that that's some sort of negative but that's what they're trying to say you know this will this pipeline or this facility will have frack gas and you know the the way things are, are working right now 95 percent of the new wells in the united states are fracked and you know i think roughly about almost up to 70 percent of the domestic natural gas comes from frack wells so i mean this has had huge impact i think a little over 40 percent of oil comes from fracking in the united states so i mean this this technology this process is at a huge impact and it's been obviously wildly beneficial to the consumer right and I that's an interesting comment uh, I'm on the board at, of uh, independent Association of New York and learned of a bill proposed by a senator from Manhattan recently that uh, proposed that all uh, gas coming into New York State from fracked wells should be prohibited and we were we were going to support that. Uh, we felt if, if, if you couldn't put any more frack gas into New York, uh, it would only be a, a, a day or two, and the entire state would have to shut down. Uh, obviously, the building don't. Somebody, somebody informed the guy of the facts you mentioned, and uh, I think they pulled the bill. But but they're such you know, hypocrites have, because they oppose the process. But, you know, in Maryland, there's just as much or more gas being used today than when they passed the ban a right. couple of weeks ago. And, and and that's the irony of the situation. Dan, go ahead. I, well, let, let's let Dan no, talk. Our, <laughs> what I was going to say is we, we in Pennsylvania, we, we've said that a lot. You know, it, it's kind of ironic is, is the people that, that don't want the gas, you know, i.e. a lot of the people in New York City, are also the people that are, you know, one of the biggest takeaways in in the, in the Northeast. And you know, what what could you possibly do if you didn't have gas just for one day? What 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 are you missing? You know, and that's what people need to understand that in our daily lives, the amount of of natural gas and oil products and petrochemicals that we use on a daily basis, you know, it's six thousand products. Uh, you know, come from this. It's not just natural gas to, to to run your vehicle or heat your house. It's all the different pharmaceuticals that come from it. It's the different fertilizers that come from it. And people often forget, and, they, and the key one that they're forgetting lately is the fact that you ask somebody when they go over and turn on the light switch and the light bulb comes on, you say, hey, where did that electricity come from? They say, well, I turned on the light switch. No, 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 back it up. Where did that electricity come from? Well, more and more power generations are being taken on by natural gas. You know, so we're looking at, you know, where are we at with our air quality? Well, we're better now or we're back to where we were, you know, 20 plus years ago. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Well, we have less coal power, power plants and we have more natural gas. Right. It's burning fossil fuel available. Let's go to a more national level. Do, is there, do you guys think that there's any chance of uh, more states in areas that are more rich in in gas or oil, to even explore this this, this line to go down 
a, a fracking ban. Um, maybe not Texas or Louisiana, but in, say Colorado or you know somewhere like that. Well, I think the environmental community will try. Uh, I, you know, I think because of the activity, the number of jobs supported, the benefits, uh, you know, to the make that case there is very difficult. And, um, you know, I think because of their experience of working there, they can show some of the, the horror stories environmentalists try to paint uh, really aren't factually accurate or true and have not had problems in those states. Obviously, the federal government right now is much more friendlier to uh, fracking or pipelines and industry in general. Uh, does, is there any chance that they step in at any point, or can they, or is this purely a state-level uh, issue? Well, I think most of the regulations are promoted by the state when it comes to fracking. There's, mm -hmm. there's, there's federal. There, there, you know, there was an attempt to have the EPA regulate fracking, and also uh, in, in the state uh, or federal. Uh, uh, parks area uh, to regulate fracking, and that seems to be put on hold under the current administration. Uh, so we're really at the state level when it comes to regulatory regulating uh, hydraulic fracturing uh, th throughout the nation. Uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in four years or eight years, uh, but I'm sure there'll be another movement somewhere into the future of trying to make that back. Uh, uh, controlled by the federal government. Okay. But at the, at the moment, I think, uh, you know, the states are going to control. And we, and we think that's the best place, you know, the states and, and understanding their local uh, issues and geology and other things that, that, you know, generally those regulation things is best, best handled on the local level at the state level. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so we, we are getting short on time, uh, but I want to go sort of around the room, closing, closing thoughts. Uh, I'll throw out a question, but give me your closing thoughts. I mean, fracking bans here to stay, or do we, should we expect more going forward? And I'll throw it out. Anybody want to start? Yeah, this is Dan. Um, you know, I, I think I think moratoriums are, are a political issue on a state level. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of it, you know, for them to be overturned or depending on what happens are going to require an administration change, uh, a lot of education and a ground level swell. Um, do we see more in the future? That's hard to tell. I mean, you, you may see a, a few states, like you said, throughout the podcast without development that may want to jump on the bandwagon. Um, and, and some of the opposition can claim that as a victory. Um, but if there was never going to be drilling there in the first place, is that a true victory? But yet it gives them a number in their column. Yeah, and this is Mike. I, I agree with uh, with everything you just said. You know, in in New York, it's interesting. Uh, the, the New York has a declaration of policy for the DEC, and part of it says that uh, the DEC is to protect the correlative rights of all mineral owners, uh, and also any persons, including landowners and the general public. Uh, and they're also to promote the uh, ultimate recovery of oil and gas in the most economic way. Uh, they certainly aren't following that policy. And I think going forward as hopefully natural gas prices increase and ec the economics of developing in New York and maybe a change in administration or a, a high enough price that, uh, again, political pressure gets put on the administration uh, and this gets forced upon them to to stick with their their policy. 
uh, I, I see New York rushing to uh, change the policy in the near future. But ultimately, there will be drilling in New York, but it's, it, it may be five or ten years off. And Drew, and, you want to close this out? Yeah, and in Maryland, uh, you know, I'm not optimistic that uh, you know this ban could be reversed anytime soon. Uh, some with the, just the political nature of it and the way politics and things are in Maryland. So I'm um, I'm not exactly um, you know uh, optimistic anything will happen in the near term for sure. Uh, as far as a broader thing, I, you know, I think the environmentalists continue to push. Uh, extreme try to do this, but as I said, I think where there are benefits and the showing of that, uh, I think it's unlikely they'll, they'll do it. And the other thing I think we need to do collectively is is do a better job of educating, mm-hmm. especially on the benefit side, uh, you know, especially the air quality benefits that natural gas brings and, and how important that's been to the, these states in, in these areas. I mean, it's the perfect environmental solution. You improve air quality and, and consumers end up spending less, you know, and a lot of that is through power because of power generation and the conversion of, of you know, uh, coal facilities to natural gas. But as that's ongoing, you know, that's a win-win uh, that you can get better air quality for less expense. And that doesn't happen too often, especially under command and control type uh, approach that EPA and state agencies have taken in the past. Okay. Well, gentlemen, great conversation. I'm really glad you could make it and join us today. Uh, thank you again for your time. And we will talk again soon. We could talk about this forever. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And that was our roundtable on state fracking ban. We're running short on time, but we want to continue this conversation with you offline. So get on your phone, tablets, or whatever device is your favorite and tweet me at Len Vermillion with two L's or email me at lvermillion at heartenergy.com. That's it for this episode. On our next episode, we'll be talking about the politics of the ocean just in time for the Offshore Technology Conference. That ought to be very interesting. We'll take a look at the state of deep water exploration around the globe and how geopolitics and environmental concerns will affect it. So until then, stay energized. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, we have several video products you might also enjoy, including Headlines, your weekly news briefing, Onshore Connect, a review of technological trends in the industry, and Midstream Connect, a review of the midstream sector. You can find any of those at our websites, oilandgasinvestor.com, epmag.com, ugcenter.com, or midstreambusiness.com.